Our reading now is 2 Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord. And if anybody might be tempted to think this is a little abstract, a little remote, let me remind you that you and I and all of us will be there when these things happen. So let's give our full attention to the word of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This they willfully forget, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it will be burnt up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which people unta- or which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen who is sufficient for these things. Father, as we turn once again to you in prayer, we are overwhelmed by the thought of the return of Christ. It is our heart's desire, however, that we might know and understand all that you've given us and revealed to us about this. Everything here in this book, not for our mystification or confusion, but for our learning and understanding that we might be prepared, in every way ready, 
for the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We'll see him as he is. We'll be like him. We will appear with him in glory. But our Father, we must be ready. Help us to prepare ourselves then. Prepare us, we pray. Show us even now, today, in this place, the way of life, the narrow road that leads to life. Reveal Christ to us, we pray, in his teaching, in his wisdom, in his insight and instruction, but in his saving love and power. We might embrace him by faith, be prepared to meet him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, yes, I don't suppose I'm telling you anything you haven't heard before when I say to you that Jesus Christ is coming back. There are certain things, aren't there, that we need to remember always about the return of Christ. First of all, that this will be universal. That is to say, everyone will be there. Everyone will be present when Jesus Christ returns, regardless of their beliefs. Some people will tell us now, well, I, I don't believe in Christ. I don't, I don't believe in the return of Christ. I don't believe any such thing. I believe the world will just continue as it always has. But that doesn't matter. That won't prevent them appearing before the presence of Christ when he returns. Other people have believed and worshipped different gods. All sorts of gods and religions and cults and sects. But that won't prevent them from seeing Christ in his glorious majesty on the day of his appearing. It will be universal. Every human being will appear there. And even those who've died beforehand, we're told very clearly in the Bible, they will rise. God will raise them from the dead. The graves and cemeteries will empty. Flesh and spirit will reunite in a glorious resurrection body fit for eternity. Those who have been cremated or have been lost at sea, the Lord himself will know how to reunite the dispersed particles of their physical selves and transform them into a glorious resurrection body. This will be universal. Nobody will escape this. Nobody will avoid it. Nobody will be absent. Everybody will be there. Famous people will be there from history. People you've seen on the telly will be there. People you lost many years ago in your family perhaps, beloved great aunt or second cousin, they will be there. People who used to live in this town in previous generations, they will be there. This will be universal. Then again, the return of Christ will be cosmic. It says elsewhere in the Bible that he will come to restore all things. So this will be a great remaking of the entire universe, if you can believe it. Galaxies, stars, supernovae, black holes. He will remake everything. And he will certainly remake this spoiled and ruined planet. When I get rather upset about the programs on the telly of the wildlife and the habitat and all the rest of it, I reassure myself by thinking, Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. He'll know how to put all of this right. He will know how to restore all things. This world subject as it is to death and decay, 
ruin and loss, aging, this world, he will melt down and create a wonderful new world, an eternal world. An eternal world fit for eternal life and eternal praise and worship of God. The return of Christ will be universal, it will be cosmic, but it will also be just. Judgment, we sung about it in that great hymn we've just sung now. Judgment, the great final evaluation of everyone, every man, woman and child. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible tells us. And because it's a day of justice, again, there's a sense in which we look forward to this because we know our world is not a fair world. Many unfair things happen in this world. Many people are victims of abuse or bullying or trickery or robbery, all kinds of things that are so unfair and so wrong, they never get put right. Well, when Christ returns, he will right every wrong. Every wrong will be put right. It is a day of justice, a day of judgment. For that very reason, though, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is also a day of separating. It's a day of dividing humanity into two groups. How many of Jesus' parables talk about this? How many times do you see two contrasted individuals or two contrasted groups? <coughs> the prodigal son. Well, really, it's a parable of two sons, isn't it? The older brother who stayed at home and the younger brother who went away. The uh, parable of the soils, the, the sower. Well, you say, well, there's four soils there. Yes, but three of them are ultimately fruitless in one group, and one is fruitful. So again, it's a contrast of two. Parable of wheat and weeds growing together in the same field until the harvest. One lot gets harvested in, the other burnt in the fire. The parable of the sheep and the goats. A shepherd has a flock, a mixed flock, but there comes a day when he has to separate them out. Sheep here, goats here. The parable that I'll read to you in a moment, the parable of the wedding feast. Ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, we'd say today, but five were wise and five were foolish. So we have two groups again. This great day will be a day of separation. As it says elsewhere in the Bible, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who rejects the Son will not see life. God's anger rests upon him. So we see there and in many, many other scriptures that of course the great divide, the great separation is Christ. And the great question will be, what is your attitude to him? What did you make of him? Those who believed in him enter into life. Those who rejected him lost and ruined for their own sins, of their own fault. Jesus Christ is coming back and that will be a universal day, it will be a cosmic day, it will be a just day, it will be a separating day, and we're told it will be a sudden day. No one knows when he's coming back. This is the thing. It's impossible to know when. He tells us himself, even he on earth did not know when he would come back. Even the angels in heaven can't tell us when he's coming back. It's impossible to know. But we put this together with the fact that there's nothing really needed by way of preparation or build-up. And we understand that it could be literally any instant when he returns. There's no process here 
where you can say, well, it started. He comes instantly. When you want to know what the weather will be, the weather forecaster can tell you to a certain extent. You can see on the television the swirls of the low pressure and the clouds and the rain coming in. And you can say, well, that's tomorrow's weather. There's a build-up here. Not so with the return of Christ. Normal life goes on, and then he returns. He says it himself. When he comes back, you'll find people eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, right up to the moment when he appears in this way. So he'll be a couple sitting down in a restaurant for their anniversary meal. They've ordered the food, they'll never eat it. Christ has come back first. Here is the bride preparing for her wedding day. We'll talk more about weddings in a moment. But the bride is here. She's got her women round her, the makeup, this hair, there's all kinds of things going on, but she'll never get to walk down the aisle. Christ comes back first. It's as sudden as this. Somebody's in the aeroplane, waiting to take off for their holidays. The aeroplane's taxiing towards the runway. It will never take off. Christ has come. That is the sudden nature of the return of Christ. It could be at any moment. It could be at any moment. So he says again and again in the scriptures, be ready, be ready. Be ready for my return. Be ready at any time for my return. Live in expectation. It could be any moment. So let me read to you now this parable of the ten virgins, or I think we'd say today ten bridesmaids, from Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13. Jesus himself is speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. It's wonderful, isn't it, to think of eternal life as like a wedding feast. Focusing now on those whom the Lord will gather in, his people, those who will pass through the judgment into eternal life in this wonderful new universe. The Lord says you can compare this to the excitement and the happiness and the joy of a wedding day. And what great joy there is then in knowing and being with the Lord forever. Let me read you some words from one or two of the Psalms that bring this out for us, I think. 
You have shown me the path of life. In your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. From Psalm 23, you recognize it. Or these words, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. But with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And that is just a glimpse then of of eternity. Of what it will mean to be with the Lord forever. Like a great wedding feast in the house of the Lord. And like a wedding today, so with weddings in Jesus' day, so with the return of Christ and the things of eternity, the day is an incredibly important day, isn't it? If you've been to a wedding, you know you have to take it seriously. The date comes out maybe 18 months in advance. You must block off that day in your calendar. Nothing else can happen on that day. And as the time approaches, you begin to say to yourself, well, have I got the right things to wear? (coughs) Ladies perhaps will choose for themselves a new frock, especially for the occasion, maybe a hat as well. Gents will dust off their suit and see if it needs a dry clean or perhaps buy themselves something new which is a little bit more generous around the waist. And so preparations are made and then the day comes And, well, are we going to be there in time? Where do we park? Have you got the present for the wedding? This is just if you're a guest. Surely, even just as a guest who sits at the back, you'd never take a a wedding in a casual way. You'd never approach it in an offhand manner. It's far too special of a day for that. What do you think of these five virgins in the parable are unprepared for their important role. These five virgins, these five foolish virgins, we're told, five foolish bridesmaids, they stand for those expecting to be part of it, expecting to be part of the great marriage feast of the Lamb, expecting to go into the house of the Lord and enjoy pleasures in his presence forever, who find at the end they're excluded, excluded in the end. Think about this. Yes, we find it a number of places in Jesus' teaching, don't we, that there will be those who are confident even. I'll be fine. I'll be with the Lord in eternity. They have a living hope. They don't have doubts or anxieties. They have great assurance. But the Lord says in the end, they'll be lost. So we need to understand why. And make sure that all is well with us while we still can. Now, there are differences as well between weddings now and weddings in Jesus' day. One of them, for example, is that the couple would get betrothed. They would make vows and promises to each other. 
sometime before setting up home together. For example, Joseph and Mary were betrothed in the nativity story, as you remember. They had a binding commitment to each other, but they hadn't yet been intimate or moved in together. So that when Joseph found that Mary was pregnant, he realised that the best thing he could do was divorce her. So we understand that this is more than an engagement such as you might have today. They were married in the sense they were promised to each other and committed to each other from that point of betrothal. But the actual wedding day itself then wouldn't follow until perhaps a year later or perhaps more, allowing the groom to get the house ready and prepare things for his bride. And it's the wedding day that's in view in this parable. There is a, a procession of the, the groom with his groomsmen coming through the streets and the bride must go out to meet him with her procession. And then they will go in together with all their friends and family into the groom's new home, the new home of the married couple, and they will have a feast that will last typically for several days. So things have uh, gone on a little bit, as they often do at weddings, and the timing isn't quite running to, to schedule, and there's somewhat of a, a hold-up for some reason, and uh, people nod off and have a little nap. And then all of a sudden the bridegroom comes. Come out to meet him, he's here. Now this is not the moment, if you're a bridesmaid, to be running around organising yourself and making everybody wait. Nobody's going to wait for you. It's not your big day, is it? It's a wedding day, and you've got to be there. You've got to go out and be in this procession right now. So these five foolish virgins, these bridesmaids who haven't got enough oil, they're in trouble. They have a problem. And I wonder why they didn't have enough oil. I wonder what went through their minds. I wonder why they didn't take this wedding seriously. Seems strange, doesn't it? It's a wedding. Why aren't you prepared? Oh, well, I just thought, you know, I'd just have a little bit of oil in my, in my, in my little lamp here and that would be enough. I, I didn't want to spend extra money, you know. I didn't want to spend out. I was conscious of the cost, so I just bought my little lamp. I, I thought that would be all right, wouldn't it? No, it wasn't. Oh, well, you know, I mean, if I do run out, the other girls are there. I'm sure I can have some of their oil. They'll, they'll share around. It won't be a problem. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be overstressed about it. I'm not going to worry about it too much. Uh, the girls will help. No, they can't. They can't. They can't help you. But you know, the bridegroom groom there, he's a, he's a kind-hearted sort of fellow. He's, he's, he's not prone to be too strict about things. I'm sure if we don't have any, any oil and our little lamps go out, I'm sure he'll let us in anyway. I'm sure he'll be generous on his, on his... No, he won't. He won't. He won't let you in at all. So the cry comes to join the procession. And these five foolish bridesmaids have to scrabble around and go and wake people up in the night and try and get themselves some oil. And it is a wedding after all, so the people get up and give them oil so they can have their lamps for the wedding procession but by the time they've scrabbled around and sorted it all out this procession's been and gone and they've all gone in and the door's shut and they knock on the door Lord, Lord, open to us they want to go in they thought they would go in Lord, Lord, there's eagerness there there's earnest enthusiasm we want to be part of this please let us in but that bridegroom then, well, he seems to have taken it quite badly. These bridesmaids, these virgins, he says to himself, these five foolish young women, they've disrespected my wife. They weren't ready. They couldn't be bothered to organize themselves. 
They didn't have the oil they needed. No, you're not coming in. Go home. You're not part of it. You're not welcome here. Go. I do not know you, he said to them, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Well, they've really made a mess here, haven't they? But you see, life's like this, isn't it? There are times in life when it's just too late. Exam time. Too late to start thinking about revision. It's today. The pension fund collapsed, taking your money with it. You thought of selling the money and selling out, but it never got round. It's too late now. The money's gone. You put it off. I'll do it tomorrow. Now the money's gone. The venue where you were going to take your wife for your anniversary. Her favourite show is on. But it's sold out. You left it too late. The place is full. You can't get in. The return of Christ. The return of Christ. How many people will say, Lord, Lord. They say, I never knew you. The door's shut. It's too late. Well, it's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? Some people comfort themselves perhaps by saying, I have years yet. I'm, I'm healthy enough. I just had my blood test back and everything's clear. No risk here, no risk to my health. I will carry on for years and years. I'll sort this out when I'm, when I'm an old man, when I'm an old woman. I'll sort out my relationship with the Lord then. There's no urgency here. But of course there's no guarantee of years and years for anybody, is there? No guarantee. And add to that the fact that Jesus Christ really could return at any moment. And when he does return, tragically... Some people who thought they were part of it all will find they're on the outside, left out. Some people who were sure they were part of it all, who felt sure they'd be with the Lord in eternity, will find that he never knew them. Well, if you fail in the exam, you can have another go. If your pension fund collapses, you can start saving up again, I suppose, and try and build up some money again. If they didn't take your wife out for the anniversary, you can always try again when it's her birthday with fulsome apologies. But when you miss out on the return of Christ, that's it. For all eternity, that's it. We're in a youth group in Watford quite a few years ago now. And the young people there, they've got this, I don't know where they got this from, but they've got this, this sort of phrase, you only live once. YOLO, they say, YOLO, you only live once. But it's so true, isn't it? It's truer than they realised. You really do only live once. And what happens at the end? These foolish bridesmaids, sadly like so many, many people, in our world today, they, they assumed that because they were with the others, they'd share the destiny of the others. Like people in churches who assume, because I'm in a church and my friends are Christians and I enjoy the life of the church, and I, I'm accepted in the church, and I'm welcome at the coffee morning and such things, well, I, I must be a Christian then because I'm around Christian people. Well, the foolish bridesmaids 
were around other bridesmaids, but they didn't go in with them. They were friends with them and part of the same crowd, but they didn't share the same fate. What is the thing that we need then? What is the oil in the lamp, as it were, that we must make sure of? What is the thing that we must each individually have for ourselves? Nobody else can have it for us or share it with us. But I'm going to ask you to turn over into Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. If you can find this here now in the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Look at that phrase there at the end of the verse. The hope of glory. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? The hope of eternal life in the presence of the Lord. The confident expectation of being with the Lord forever. The sense that there's something much better than this world waiting for us as we enter into the presence of the Lord. But can we be sure of it? Can we be confident in this way? Those five foolish bridesmaids had a certain confidence, but it was a false confidence. Can we have a genuine, well-founded expectation of life, eternal life beyond the return of Christ, beyond the grave? Well, look at the condition in this phrase then. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that? The second part of the verse is about the future. The first part is about your life now. Christ in you. Christ living in you. The Lord Jesus Christ at home in your heart is a, a famous Christian classic entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That's the kind of person who will be with the Lord forever. The person who can say, I've been savingly changed. I'm not what I once was. I've been made new. I'm a new creation. Now I know and trust and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I never used to, but now he's my life. Once he was an idea in my head or some theories or some things I believed and talked about with other people, some hymns I sang, but now he's my life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. These are the people who go in and spend eternity with the Lord. That's where the Apostle Paul puts it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. So there's no small change then. It's nothing you drift into. You don't wake up one morning and say, I think I've got it like a, like a cold. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what it means to have Christ in us, the hope of glory to come. And there's no substitute for this. There's no substitute for knowing Jesus personally to the extent that you can say he lives in me. We're going to sing in a minute. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. I was changed. Christ came into my life. 
And you can't be casual here. You can't treat this in an offhand way, like those bridesmaids in the parable. You can't assume all will be well and you'll muddle through somehow. You dare not be casual here. You must have Christ. Not just ideas in your head or theories or doctrines. You must have him living in your heart. Well, those bridesmaids said, we can cut the corners here. We can cut the cost a little bit. We can skimp a bit. They couldn't. We'll muddle through, they said. They didn't. That groom, that husband, he'll be soft-hearted enough to let us in. He wasn't. You must make sure of your relationship with Christ. You must know where you stand with him. You must seek him and pray and be earnest and be serious and prioritize this until you know that he's yours and you are his. And you can say, yes, Christ lives in me and glory will surely be mine. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us here have those we know and care about and love and they are unprepared. They have no interest in the things of God, no interest in church or anything to do with it. They want nothing of Christ. We pray for them and plead that you'll change their hearts from this point because the day is soon. Then, Lord, there are those who are are around Christian circles and part of Christian events and churches and such things. And, Lord, you alone know where they truly stand. But let them know themselves, Lord. Let each one know. Let each of us know ourselves and be sure. Do I have Christ or not? Lord, we plead with you for those who don't and for those who perhaps still think they do. Lord, please reveal the need. And then meet the need. So that we, each of us here, each one without exception, can say, Christ is mine and I am his. Christ is my life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When he appears, I will appear with him in glory. Because he lives in me. Lord, I pray... This may be true of each one. We will meet again around the throne. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.